today on Ag News Daily. And, you know, over those many years, uh, it just seems like the more pressure we apply to make things better, the more resistance we face. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Ag News Daily Podcast. My name is Delaney Howell, joined as always by my co-host, Mike Pearson. Mike, it is hard to believe that it is already Thursday. Yeah. Is I was just thinking that, Delaney. I've got some responsibilities that have to be completed on Thursday, namely completing the commentary on the markets for the Global Ag News newsletter, which listeners, if you are not currently subscribed to, you need to get on your computer and head to globalagnetwork.com and, uh, and hit subscribe. It's on the very bottom of the page. Get our weekly newsletter. Get updates on the markets and all the podcasts we carry. It is fantastic stuff. And, uh, Delaney reminded me, I need to get my market commentary in. So I'm going to get that done, Delaney. Yes, Mike, you better get it done. The people are counting on it. Absolutely. And listeners, remember, you can always, uh, you know, give us a shout if you've got questions about what we're talking about on the newsletter or in the commentary. Absolutely. Send us your pictures, your thoughts, your comments. You can send it to us via the newsletter and or our social media. But, Mike, that's enough plugs about Global Ag Network and Ag News Daily. Let's get down to it and talk about the news for today. Talking about the news, well, I've got, before we get too deep into the weeds on agriculture, we've got some big broader economy news that came out today. Today is the much-touted jobs day that the the broad economy looks at. Um, we've got a couple big reports. First, uh, first was jobs. Second was uh, the Commerce Department said orders for non-defense capital goods uh, dropped half a percent last month. Basically, they said there was less demand for transportation equipment, motor vehicles and parts, and computers. And, um, you know, this this in a, a way, we don't know exactly how big of a way, was, uh, was sort of hit by the ongoing strike at General Motors. So that was some concerns right there. On the other side of the coin, jobless claims fell a little bit. Um, so that definitely shows that there is still strength in the jobs market. Basically, initial claims for state unemployment benefits declined 6,000 jobs to 212,000 for the week. Um, and basically, they, uh, that was kind of right in line where economists were figuring. So that was generally positive news for the broader economy. But Delaney, that's what's shaping the investors' picture as they're looking at the Dow and the equity markets versus the commodity markets. What's happening in agriculture we need to be aware of? Well, Mike, there are quite a few things happening in agriculture that folks should be aware of. I want to kick it off here with an article I was reading today on Bloomberg, because as we know, President Trump and the Trump administration has promised that China is going to buy 40 to $50 billion worth of agricultural goods. But it appears like now a more realistic expectation for the next year is about $20 billion worth in Chinese purchases. According to people close to the matter, they said China is going to aim to buy at least $20 billion of agricultural products within a year if it signs a partial trade deal with the U.S. and put us back to pre-tariff levels around 2017. And people anonymously, of course, wouldn't share who they were, but said that realistically these 40 to $50 billion worth of agricultural purchases are not going to happen for the foreseeable future, probably not going to happen until at least year two. And at the really, I guess, culmination of a final deal. Ah, so we might get 20 if we get phase mm -hmm. one done. If we get 
to the end, then we'll get the 40 to 50. That's what it sounds like. And it and, also is, is very contingent upon removing all tariffs. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I've got a feeling if China says we're going to write this big of a check, they're going to want something big in return. And I've said it before on this podcast. I've said it in my speeches. We are not going to have a comprehensive trade deal with China Anytime we have a Trump administration in power here, I think there's just too much to gain politically for him to be willing to sign something over, given the fact that China's probably not going to change their ways when it comes to stealing intellectual property and you know doing the, the shady stuff that they do do that we should be concerned about. Yes. So it sounds like so it's $20 a, billion. Right. $20 billion. All right. You know, at the end of the day, that was kind of where, as you mentioned, China was in 2017. That was still making them one of the leading purchases of purchasers, rather, of American soybeans. And even if they need fewer soybeans, as African swine fevers decimated their herd, they could at least be buying some more U.S. pork, which might be a, a great piece of news that it spurred demand for, uh, for pork here in this country. And uh, that would help us spur domestic demand for, uh, for bean meal, which would be a great thing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And actually, since you brought up bean meal and just the demand situation, This is just kind of a funny piece of news that I was reading today looking at really where soybeans and soy meal is headed for the foreseeable future. And the U.S. Soybean Export Council just released a new report looking at a new source for feeding out soy and soy meal products. Mike, do you have any guess what that new source is? is? The new This is a new thing that will use up bean meal. Yes. It is shrimp. It is not. You are close. It is tilapia. It is frogs and amphibians. Apparently the Vietnamese people and culture largely like to eat frogs. And the U.S. Soybean Export Council released a report that this industry is booming. And the livestock, I guess if that's what you want to call a frog, consumed about 30,000 metric tons of feed in 2014. And by 2018... They leaped to 80,000 metric tons. Wow. Yeah. Wow. A 50,000 metric, 50,000 metric ton jump in consumption in a year? In four years. Four years. Four years. But this year, 2018 to 2019, there's expected to be a 16,000 ton increase to about almost 100,000 metric tons that they're feeding to these frogs and other amphibians. Boy, that is a lot of fried-up frog legs right oh, there. Yeah. Man, well, that's fantastic. Anytime we can find a demand source, we've got to celebrate it. Yep, I'm not going to eat the frog legs personally myself, but uh, more power to anybody else who wants to. And now, Delaney, have you ever had frog I legs have. properly prepared? I have. And, you know, they do kind of taste like chicken, but I just can't get past, like, what I'm eating. Ribbit, ribbit. You yeah. just can't can't get that out of your mind. Mm-mm. Yeah. All right. Well, I don't blame you, but I, I have only had frog legs twice in my life. Both times I found them delicious. I'm just, you know, I think of it as a Cajun thing, and it's tough to find Cajun cooking in uh, Iowa. Yes, that it is. St. Louis, or uh, not St. Louis, New Orleans is good for that, but not so much. Yeah, often. exactly. Exactly. I got it down in all But I've got some news here. I want to make this public. This comes from our friends down in Georgia. Uh, This is from the Georgia Agribusiness Council. It's an alert that doesn't pertain necessarily to Georgians, although they have had to deal with it. This is coming from Indiana and Oklahoma. Apparently, people are posing as United States census takers 
they're visiting poultry farms and they're trying to take pictures of farm operations. Uh, so this has happened, as I mentioned, Indiana, Oklahoma, and at least one broiler farm in Georgia have been subject to these uh, weird faux census takers. And we don't know who they really work for. Uh, the, the people that tried it in Georgia, they left the farm before any authorities could arrive. But it is expected that they work for some kind of anti-animal ag organization. So I just want our listeners to know we got a lot of folks who tune in who are cattle producers, pork producers, poultry producers. Um, these folks are going to take advantage of the fact that we are going to have a census in 2020 or you know, on, on the way right now. And you might see real census takers, but here's what the Georgia Agribusiness Council says. They say a real census taker will present an ID badge that shows their name, their photograph, and a Department of Commerce watermark. They will be carrying an official bag with the Census Bureau logo or a laptop, and they will provide you with a letter from the Census Bureau on official letterhead stating why they're there. They will only show up between 9 a.m. and 9 p.m., and upon request – the uh, the person will provide you with their supervisor's contact information or the op- the number for the regional office so you can verify it. So if you are a livestock producer and you get somebody that shows up that seems a little shady, follow these tips, get that number, call the supervisor's office. Let's just verify. We got to be realistic. We know there are people out there who don't like our industry, and you know let's be proactive and uh, make sure we can protect ourselves. Wow, I tell you what, what is this world coming to, Mike? Exactly. Exactly. I mean, that that just scared me when I saw that. I, I don't get too nervous very often, but you can't trust people. No, that's sad. You really can't, I guess. Yeah. All right. Well, that's my update there, my little uh, little PSA for our listeners. All right. Well, Mike, I just have one other piece of news that I think our listeners should be aware of, and that is on the USMCA front. Canada just had a major election last weekend, and... Prime Minister Justin Trudeau got re-elected. However, despite some claims made by President Trump, Canada has not yet ratified USMCA. So that is one thing that will or could affect passing USMCA. But Monday's election also weakened Canada's Liberal Party, which was the major power prior to the election that was renegotiating USMCA and the uh, parties that are in power now are not quite as in favor of the deal, from what I understand. So oh. it could uh, hold up the, the ratification process on the Canadian side. However, on the U.S. side, it really seems like maybe things are moving and shaking. We saw a couple Congress folks, including Cindy Axney of Iowa, come forth and say that they were pro-USMCA now and making wanting to make progress on it, pushing it forward. And Richard Neal, which is the House Ways and Means Committee chairman, also told reporters after their latest meeting with Lighthizer that they've really narrowed down their differences considerably. And he himself will be planning to meet with both Justin Trudeau and Mexico's president. All right. Well, that is good news. Um, That is, well, it's weird. It's got the conservatives in Canada against it and the Democrats in the U.S. against it. Right. And, you know, what really worst cases, we just keep NAFTA, which for agriculture is a push. Yeah. It's just, I've got, I hate to yeah. see that after all this. Right. I mean, that's a ton of wasted manpower and dollars and everything else. Mm-hmm. But strictly from an ag perspective, not looking at manufacturing or intellectual mm-hmm. property or any of that, you know, NAFTA, NAFTA works for most of agriculture. Right. 
Um, speaking of most of agriculture, something we have been terrified about in this country is the spread of African swine fever. It continues to spread in China and apart, uh, across parts of Southeast Asia. And it was announced earlier today that the Chinese Academy of Sciences has reported that several of their researchers have uh, made a pretty big breakthrough. They have been able to put together a three-dimensional structure of the actual African swine flu or African swine fever virus, which they say allows them to lay a solid foundation for developing effective and safe vaccines. Basically, um, what they've found is that this virus has unique structure. It's got five layers in the virus, which I guess is fairly uncommon. I don't, I don't know that much about viruses. So I'm going to run this down so our science-minded listeners can uh, make sense of it. But there's five layers. There's the outer membrane, the capsid, the double-layer inner my, my membrane, and the core shell. And then inside all of that is the genome. And uh, it contains more than 30,000 protein subunits. And I thought this was interesting. Don't know what it means, but it forms a spherical particle with a diameter of about 260 nanometers. I'm not going to lie. I glazed over a little bit while you're just describing all that. I don't blame you, Delaney. I kind of glazed over reading it. But the important thing is nerds who understand this stuff can take this data and hopefully figure out weaknesses that this virus has and maybe come up with a vaccine, come up with some sort of a cure that should it continue to spread, knock on wood, should it ever spread into the U.S., we can fight it effectively. Okay, well, that's some good news. Right, exactly. So it's a positive thing, um, it, although I'm sure that's still quite a long ways away, yeah. being able to actually solve this issue. Yeah, absolutely. There are many pumps found on the farm, and each one is critical in its own way. It differs little if it is a coolant pump on an engine, a hydraulic system, or any other application. A broken pump can bring your entire farm operation to a standstill. Welcome to the Hot Rod Farmer Minute. I am Ray Bohax from the Idle Chatter podcast found on the Global Ag Network. Though a pump can fail due to age and use, the reality is that most are murdered, snatched from their prime with much life left in them. The culprit is cavitation, and it sends warning signs, but most are ignored. I believe we all experience the pump vibrating excessively, hammering, groaning, and whistling. If so, you witness pump cavitation. Pump cavitation describes the formation of bubbles or cavities in the bulk fluid being moved that usually develops around the low pressure area. This is the result of either an entrained gas in the liquid from the vapor pressure being exceeded or from a lack of flow. When the vapor bubbles collapse or implode, they strike at the speed of sound, creating noise and vibration. This collision will erode the surfaces of the pump and impeller while the harmonics attack the bearing, shaft alignment, and seal. The pump is destroying itself during cavitation. When a failed pump is examined, you will notice an appearance that resembles a sponge-like texture or missing material. Depending on the pump design and operating characteristics, the bearing may fall victim first, allowing excessive shaft movement and a collision of the impeller with the housing. Minor cavitation will result in decreased output or pressure. It is imperative that you are cognizant of the sound and pressure flow characteristics of all the pumps in use on your farm. 
cavitation caught in the early stages will have minimal impact on pump life. The most common cause is a flow restriction or running the pump at a speed that is out of its operating range. If a pump does fail, you need to take it apart and determine if it was the result of cavitation. If there is a problem in the fluid system that is left uncorrected, then the new pump will eventually fail for the same reason. Well, Delaney Howell, if you're out of news and I'm out of news, should we see where the market's wrapped up for the day? Let's do it. All right, folks, in the corn market, we've got a little bit of red on the screen, but not a catastrophic day by any stretch of the imagination. December corn was down a penny to close at 386 and three quarters. The March contract down one and three quarters to finish at 398 even. Soybeans also a little down on the day. November contract dropped half a cent at 933 and a quarter. January down one and a quarter to finish at 947 even. And wheat kind of took it on the chin today versus the other grains. December Chicago wheat was down four and three quarters at 516 even. The March also down four and three quarters to Close the day at 5.21 and a quarter. Jumping over to the world of livestock, we've got, again, weakness in both the cattle and hog complexes today. December live cattle down 52.5 cents at 114.72.50. February down 37.50 to close at 120.05. In feeders, the November contract dropped 57.5 cents at 144.17.50. January down 62.50 to close at 140.57.5. And And in lean hogs, that December contract dropped $1.2750 to close at 64.55. February down $1.62.5 to finish the day at 73.47.5. Looking over at the dairy market, another strong performance in the deferred months. The October, again, expiring here in the next week, uh, was up a penny at 1866 in Class 3 milk. November, however, was up 32 cents on the day to finish at 1933. Without further ado, Delaney, why don't you tell us who we're talking to in our interview portion of the show today? Well, Mike, you and I had a great conversation with Mike Calicrate about uh, various things related to the cattle industry, so let's turn it over to that. Well, we are talking to a jack-of-all-trades today for the cattle industry, and that is Mike Calicrate, located well in Kansas and both Colorado. Mike, I'm not going to try and introduce you too much more than that. I will let you do the honors, but please share a little bit about your role within the cattle and ranching industry. Well, years ago, I, I you know, got out of Colorado State University with an animal science degree and came back to St. Francis, Kansas, and built a feedlot and in fact, since then, I've built a couple of commercial feedlots here in Cheyenne County, Kansas. And, and uh, probably in around the uh, end of the 80s or first of the 1990s, I, I really got the feeling like my industry was, was not providing us with a, a good competitive marketplace. And, and I thought that the meat, there were becoming way too few meat packers and, and it, just kind of felt like they were not not competing, and and so I, I really started looking into it because I, I felt like, you know, we I'd been through so many hard times in the cattle feeding business, and so many uh, instances of losing, you know, almost all of your capital, and and you just you just it was just such high risk and high stress, and it just didn't make any sense, and so I started looking into it, and and I started really learning a lot about the the consolidation problem within the industry and and uh, learning how what impact that was having on our cash cattle prices and and by 1996 I had 
joined a group of other cattle producers in a lawsuit against IBP, uh, which later became Tyson uh, IBP. And that case went to trial in Montgomery, Alabama in 2004. And so ever since about 1996, I've, I've really worked hard to try to support and promote more competitive markets and giving uh, making sure there's plenty of competition in the industry, working towards that through groups like the Organization for Competitive Markets, uh, RCAF uh, USA is another group that started about the same time as OCM. And, you know, over those many years, uh, it just seems like the more pressure we applied to make things better, the more resistance we faced. And, and so here we are today with just, you know, three or four packers that cooperate rather than compete, a huge, huge loss of our share of the consumer dollar as agricultural producers overall, not just the cattle industry. Uh, and, and so we, 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 I think we're really at risk right now from a nation, uh, from a food security perspective. Uh, consumers aren't, aren't getting, you know, the, the choices that they deserve. And, and I'm just really, really worried. But, but along the way, you know, we, we felt like the tools to address the concentration and consolidation problem in the packing industry were litigation, legislation, and the third really avenue uh, was to create the alternative uh, to the industrialized and concentrated food system that we had. And so I started a company called Ranch Foods Direct, which which uh, occupies a whole lot of my time. And basically what I did is I, I scaled back my cattle operation in St. Francis, Kansas, uh, to just what animals I could produce that I could sell direct to consumers up along the front range with Colorado Springs being our base of operation. So now we, we raise the very best cattle we possibly can with the Angus cows and Wagyu bulls. Uh, we have also have uh, a, a pork operation uh, using Berkshire boars on crossbred sows. Uh, we've got, we raise eggs, uh, chicken operation where we produce uh, free-range eggs. And we take those to Colorado Springs where everything is, is processed and sold through two retail stores and through some wholesale accounts uh, that, that range from Boulder, Colorado to Pueblo, Colorado. And so I basically tried to build my own pathway to the market, but also make it available for other people to clearly see that maybe, maybe it would be possible somewhere else for someone else to do what I've done. Uh, it takes a lot of capital. It's... it's you certainly haven't eliminated the risk, but but you've but you're able to sell more directly to the consumer, who I think all the time wants uh, more information and transparency about how their food's produced, and they really want to know where it comes from. So we're we're trying to fill that niche at the same time is really show people, show industry, uh, show you know both consumers and producers the benefits of being more closely connected uh, and doing business more directly with with more dollars going back to that farm and ranch gate to further sustain those operations but also build stronger communities. You know, and that's the thing, Mike. We have seen a huge movement in agriculture towards that kind of direct marketing where where operations are realizing that there is a lot of margin on the table if they're willing to assume more risk 
But like you mentioned, it hasn't been enough to really structurally alter the industry. We're still dealing with the four big packers that the majority of cattle producers are still having to work with. And so I wanted to circle back to an event that you uh, you were a part of recently, the Rally to Stop the Stealing, held in Omaha. And uh, can you give us an update or, or fill us in on what that was about and how you feel it went? Well, you know, after that fire in Garden City at the Tyson plant, the big meat, well, the, the packers lowered the live cattle price eight to ten dollars a hundredweight and increased the price of box beef to wholesalers twenty some dollars a hundredweight, and it was just such a classic example of monopoly power, and reminds us of a hundred years ago when when they broke up the big meat packers when they were doing precisely the same, and as Senator John B. Kendrick said on the floor uh, of the Senate in 1921 senator from Wyoming, he said that the big meat packers uh, and at that time controlled the four, big four, big five meat packers controlled less than 50% of the market as uh, compared to 85% of the market today with the big four. But back then, John Kendrick, Senator John Kendrick said the big meat packers are standing between the producer on one hand and the consumer on the other taking advantage of both. And that is exactly what happened after that, after that Tyson fire. And, and I have said for many years, uh, really, it's, it's, it's since looking into the, uh, the discovery of the IBP case, we found out that the meat packers were really beginning to cooperate to, rather than compete back in the mid to late 70s, where they would let IBP sort of lead the way and the others would follow and they would, they would uh, buy cattle far cheaper through the use of captive supplies and and, and, and tools that they that they were able to develop that let them buy these cattle a lot cheaper and, and thereby reducing the amount that the rancher would receive in the end. And now it's you know we've lost a thousand dollars of our share of that consumer dollar and, and at the farm and ranch gate. And so now uh, after this Tyson fire, we decided well we got we got to raise some hell. I mean there is no market. There is no live cattle market. It's just a price. It's a price that the big packers and the big retailers think that they can get away with paying. And if they can condition the seller, you know, me, other cattle producers to take less, then they're certainly going to pay us less. And, and so it's a matter of how much hell you can raise, how, much, how you can draw as, as much attention to the problem as possible. And that was the point of the rally. And, and really, the, 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 what gave us the idea for this rally was an event in 1994. In the spring of 1994, IBP pulled out of the market for six weeks, killing their own captive supply instead of buying in the cash market. The market crashed $17 in six weeks. There was a group, somewhere around 1,500 cattle producers, rallied in Omaha in the spring of 1994 and just raised hell. They were looking for someone to hang. They were angry. And the very next week, we put $12 back on the finished mm. cattle market. Wow. And, and so that was sort of what we were basing this rally on. It was really based on the success of that. We did another one in Omaha just this, this, uh, this month. And, and we think we've, we've, we've had some success. We, we, it was really important that we hold the rally right away before the big calf runs started. And really what we've seen is about a $12 recovery 
on the uh, live cattle. Since that about, Tyson I mean, fire. Yeah, after the Tyson fire. Mm-hmm. And we've seen these calf markets come back big time. Feeder cattle, the big feeder cattle markets are back, you know, many dollars higher. We've yeah. got a long way to go to get back where we need to be as far as cattle producers and our share of what consumers spend for beef. But at least we're making some progress. And so the rally, I think, was a huge success. I, I think it drew a lot of, of attention. It basically was a message to the meat packers that we've had enough and we're not going to take it anymore. Absolutely. And it was great to see so many folks pair together and, and rally together, so to speak, for that event. But, Mike, I want to ask about one other piece of the Mike Calicrate brand, if you will, and that's your mobile meat processing unit. I thought this was really just phenomenal and interesting and a unique take on maybe avoiding having to use some of those big meat packing companies. Tell us a little bit about the mobile meat processing unit and how you got the idea to start that. Sure. Back in 2000, I started shipping my cattle up to Colorado Springs, the GNC packing company. And, and after several years, I, we sensed the GNC might be like many of the other meat packers, small regional meat packers, and being forced out of business. And I, and I was very, very fortunate to run across uh, the SRAP group, uh, the, the Socially Responsible Ag Project, with a, 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 a Bill Weida was, was heading that, that project up at the time. And he was given a talk at, at Colorado College in Colorado Springs. And so I just went up and introduced myself to Bill. I knew about his work, and, but I'd never met him. And, and I said, I told him about what I was doing in Colorado Springs. And he says, oh, you need to know about this mobile slaughter unit project that we're working on just so happened that they were having a mobile slaughter unit built in Columbus, Nebraska, and a friend of mine was doing it. So I jumped in and got involved, and I offered to be the guinea pig. So they brought the mobile unit when it was finished to St. Francis, Kansas, and I started using it under USDA inspection. I had all the other pieces in place. I had the processing plant in Colorado Springs with the big carcass cooler with the ability to cut everything up and box it all the way, uh, cut it, all the way to retail, but I didn't have the slaughter piece. And I, always, and I just thought, boy, if we could kill these animals where they are and reduce the stress, it would directly impact and improve meat quality. And, and of course, from a humane perspective, it just couldn't get any better. And so basically the, the, the unit was sent down to St. Francis. We, we modified it. We made it better. In fact, now we've built four of them, and uh, we've got a more modern sort of a a 2.0 version in St. Francis right now. Uh, it's it's mo- not mobile though. It's 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 got wheels, but you can't afford to move them. Uh, it, it, it's set up more of like a docking station to where it's you use it every day, uh, five days a week under USDA inspection. It's got a good uh, corral system that attaches to it. it. It's all done very professionally and first class. And, uh, and it's just made our lives so much better and, and improved the, the business so much. I mean, knowing, knowing that you've got every single bit of the supply chain covered from, from the cow uh, meeting the bull to the steak hitting the plate, now there's nowhere in our system where, where we don't have control of the process. Plus, we love to be able to help other people get to the market. And, Mike, what you were just saying, you know, there's not enough of these projects around. And, 
and not every rancher can afford a meat market in, in, a, in an urban center. And so with anything that we can do to help others in processing their animals, cutting up their meat, making it retail ready so they can sell to people that they know or, or develop a brand or, or market whatever they, they, they have, we are very, very happy to provide that infrastructure, which is the main ingredient, the main thing that is lacking uh, in, in the ability for producers to connect to consumers, and that's the infrastructure. It's extremely capital intensive. It's high risk. You've got to you've got to work with USDA. That is not an easy thing to do, and and uh, and so we're we're very happy to be able to provide that infrastructure not only for ourselves but for others. Absolutely. Now, Mike, when you look ahead to the future, particularly in your work with the uh, with OCM, what do you see as being the answer to the problem of the big four packers? Is it more growers doing what you're doing and finding ways to empower kind of the regional, uh, the local slaughter plants or, or even on-farm processing? Or how do you see this moving forward in a way that actually impacts the cattle industry structurally? Well, I think there's two things that that uh, fix the problem with low prices at the farm and ranch gate and the lost share of the consumer dollar to the to the farmer and rancher. That and that's either law enforcement, antitrust law enforcement, anti-monopoly uh, laws that are enforced, or it's got to be competition. Either one will work. The problem with the competition is is that the big meat packers are so entrenched and so connected to the big retailers that if you try to kill cattle today outside of their system and compete with them, there's no way to penetrate that. There's no way to compete with that. And you take like a JBS that's importing extremely cheap meat from South America, and as it crosses the border, it gets the product of the USA label, and consumers can't tell it from from what's domestically produced. The market is extremely unfair, and and, una- and you're unable to participate in that kind of a market. And and so what what I've always tried to focus on is direct the retail. And and so, but man, that that takes so much capital to build that retail uh, presence and all the processing to get to get that done. And so I think the most logical thing that that could happen now that could help farmers and ranchers immediately is to get some very aggressive antitrust law enforcement. Just from the Justice Department and the Federal Trade Commission. And it doesn't matter if you were President Clinton, President Obama, or President Trump, you're not enforcing those antitrust laws that protect the producer. You're, you're allowing the big corporations that are really global companies to, sun, to simply search the world for the cheapest of everything and ship it into our country. And that is the policy that we've had for many years, really starting back in NAFTA. You know, when, when we passed NAFTA, that was a huge win for the big corporations and a big, big loss for family farmers and ranchers, both in Mexico, Canada, and the U.S. So we've got to go back and we've got to make sure we have competition, and, and that's a, that is the government's job. Right now, though, we have no one that believes it's a good answer. We, I remember when I got blackballed in my feedlot in, in December of 1998. I had 14,000 cattle in a 12,000 head feedlot. And people say, whoa, how, why did you have so many? I said, because I couldn't sell them. And they kept coming in. The replacement cattle were coming in, but I couldn't sell the, the finished cattle because the packers had decided not to buy from me. So I called 
Secretary of Agriculture, Dan Glickman. He, he was working on, in the Clinton administration. I said, and I knew him. He was, a, he was a former rep from Kansas. And I said, Dan, here's my problem. What can we do about it? I said, why don't you enforce the Packers and Stockyards Act and stop, you know, the anti-competitive practices? He says, well, you know, Mike, in this age of new age of globalization, we need big meat packers that can do business globally. And I said, yeah, but what about people like me? I mean, 12,000 head isn't exactly a tiny little farmer feeder operation. And, of course, there were already 100,000 head feedlots. Uh, the Montfort, ConAgra, Swift, JBS feedlots were, were already around and feeding 100,000 cattle in one place. So, and they had a market for their cattle because they owned the slaughterhouse. And, and, and Glickman said, I'll tell you what, he says, I will call ConAgra and Greeley and they will buy your cattle. And they did. They bought every single one of them. That's the plant that is now a JBS plant. But the problem is I didn't have a competitive market. I couldn't continue to feed cattle, so I had to close my feedlot down. And that's when a year or so later I started Branch Foods Direct. So the, the answer right now, the quick answer is to enforce the existing laws, the Packers and Stockyards Act, and, and break up the big meat packers' power. And, and that we've got a good example of how that's done from that 1921 time period when the Packers were, were monopolizing the market. So it's, it's not hard. You just have to have the willingness to do it. And we do have a federal trade commissioner that is on board, but he's a minority commissioner. His name is Rohit Chopra. And you can read about some of the uh, opinions that he's, that he's had on, on the Google and the Facebook and, and, and that kind of thing. But Rohit is all about restoring competition to the marketplace helping both small business people and consumers. Well, unfortunately, that seems like a little bit of a tall order to fill, but, Mike, we certainly appreciate your insight today. Thanks for joining us. You're welcome, and thanks for the opportunity. Interesting stuff there. When we're uh, considering what all is happening in the cattle industry, Delaney, you know, both you and I have our roots in cattle and I'll tell you, I, I don't have a solution identified, but I like the fact that so many people are getting fired up and they're getting curious about how this industry works from a structural perspective. I think that's a win. Yeah, and I'm just, I think that Mike is a man who knows, you know, kind of what to do, what he wants, and he's not just there to complain, but he's going out and trying to come up with a solution with his mobile processing unit. Absolutely. you got to salute somebody who's willing to go, hey, this isn't working. Let's find a solution. Absolutely. Well, speaking of finding a solution, listeners, if you have dead time in the combine, we've got a solution for you. That is tuning in to the Ag News Daily podcast. You can get it on our website. Go to agnewsdaily.com. That will take you to our home, the Global Ag Network, and uh, check in with us. But more importantly, check in with all the other fantastic podcasts that are hosted on the site, and be sure to sign up for the newsletter. Let's get um, get this directly in your inbox, listeners. Or you can always interact with us on social media. As we mentioned earlier, check us out at Ag News Daily on Twitter, on Facebook, and on the gram, as the cool kids call Instagram. Right, no, Delaney? Nobody calls it that, but thank you. Well, with that, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.